University Baptist Church is a faith community striving to think critically, live creatively, and love continually in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. We gather on Sunday mornings at 5775 Highland Road between Lee Drive and Kenilworth Parkway. Visit ubc-br.org or at UBCBR on Facebook for more information. Give me a kiss to build a dream on. In 1951, Louis Armstrong recorded a kiss to build a dream on. It became very familiar through the film The Strip, which used the song laced throughout the entire film. Of course, when we think of Louis Armstrong, we think of songs like this that come to mind. We think of jazz, we think of a tremendous pioneer. Armstrong came into prominence in the 1920s, influencing countless musicians, both with his style of trumpet and his unique vocals. Armstrong's stage presence persuaded jazz and popular music. But he came from a very difficult beginning. His father was a factory worker and left his family very early on in his life. His mother often turned to prostitution to provide for the needs of her family. So he's frequently left with his grandmother. At the age of fifth grade, he had to leave school and begin working himself. He was from a section in New Orleans that was called the battlefield for a reason. And this young man had something igniting within him that was compelling him forward. The music that resonated with his soul drove him beyond unthinkable family circumstances and poverty and racism. Louis Armstrong knew and lived out this inward inspiration and burning desire, and in turn, he gave us What a Wonderful World, Hello Dolly, Sitting in the Sun, Mac the Knife, It Takes Two to Tango, and A Kiss of Fire. Louis Armstrong knew why he did what he did, and his legacy has carried on for nearly a century. Pause and consider this for just a second. Why do we do what we do? I mean, we know what and how we do it. We know that we come here on Sunday mornings for Sunday school, for for worship and coffee and community time, or as I was reminded this morning, wasn't there a promise of donuts? Just wait and see. About 20 people remind me of donuts this morning. We, We know that we have various committees and teams We know that we have children and families that converge on this campus through Family Tree Cafe and Mother's Day Out. We know that we have upkeep of our building and supply our staff with jobs. But why do we do all this? What is our purpose? What is our our drive? And we've written out these fine core values. We are God-centered, rely on the Bible's authority, embrace equality, engage in discipleship, and love others. But do we value these things? Does our why drive us each day? Last week we began this conversation, start with why, examining why we do what we do. And we began with a conversation touching down on God-centered. And we're going to pick that back up this week in James chapter 2, verse 1, uh, chapter 1, verse 22. James is one of my favorite books in all of the Bible. It's the most interesting book because it only mentions the name of Jesus twice. But as you follow and study James, it could not be any more centered on the teachings of Jesus. We see this distinct connection with the ministry and message of Jesus in James 1.22, where he says this, 
Do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourself. Do what it says. Anyone who listens to the word but does not do what it says is like someone who looks at his face in the mirror and after looking at himself goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. But whoever looks intently into the perfect law that gives freedom and continues in it, not forgetting what they have heard but doing it, they will be blessed in what they do. It's hard to believe that just a few years ago there was this thing called a pocket mirror and uh, ladies would pull it out of their purse to give themselves a look over. Guys would sneak into the bathroom to make sure that mile-long nose hair was tucked away properly. But the sales of pocket mirrors have, have gone down for some reason. Oh, it's because of this thing called the smartphone and our ability to turn it on to selfie mode. Did you know that on average, there is one million selfies taken globally each day? That's one million per the age group of 18 to 24. One group did a research that, that predicted that millennials will take 25,000 selfies each in their lifetime. Google reported that 25 billion selfies were posted in 2017. And selfies can sometimes take a deadly turn. Take, for example, in 2015, an English hiker was um, electrocuted from a lightning bolt that struck his selfie stick as he was trying to take a selfie on a hike. Uh, early in February, a 24-year-old Thai woman was hit and killed by a train while attempting to take a picture with her best friend on the Bangkok trail track. Earlier this year, a Polish couple with their two children stumbled off a cliff and fell down a ravine, all because they were trying to take a selfie. The children were okay, but they're scarred for life with the fact that they literally watched their parents fall over the edge. So selfie has an official day. It's June the 21st, so be sure to mark your calendar, um, but just make sure that you stay off railroad tracks and stay behind all safety barriers. You see, when James is writing this note, there's no ability to, to flip a camera on. There's, actually, mirrors were quite rare in his day. So when James is saying, literally for somebody to have the opportunity to see their reflection in a mirror, nobody's going to forget what they look like. And yet he brings this illustration down to point when he says, what kind of idiot looks at themselves in the mirror and walks away and forget what they look like. The point is, a fool, an ignoramus, a nincompoop, a complete moron would look at themselves in the mirror and then walk away and forget what they look like. James says it's like if we hear the Word of God in our lives, this living, breathing Word of God in our lives, and then we choose to walk away and not put it into action. It's just like somebody that looks at themselves in the mirror and forgets what they look like. So what's the point? What's the point of even listening to the Word of God if we're not going to do what it says? One of the most brilliant and fascinating stories from the Gospel takes place in the Gospel of Luke. And one day Jesus is approached by this local uh, rich ruler who says to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? You remember this conversation, right? And Jesus said, what do the commandments say? You should not commit murder, not commit adultery, you know, love your neighbor, blah, 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 blah. And the man replies to Jesus, well, what? I've done all of these things. And so Jesus says, great, then one thing you lack. Go sell all of your possessions, give the money to the poor, and then come follow me. And the gospel says this was the last thing he expected to hear. 
He was very rich and became very sad. And he walked away from Jesus, not living into this living word. You see, his religion was easy. He paid 10% to the temple. He offered a sacrifice. He kept all the commands for crying out loud. He's a good old boy of religiosity of Jesus' day. But when God asked him to give everything away and come follow him into new life, his religion proved itself. It was a religious facade with no faith involved. How many of us would be willing to do the same? See, this should be the first lesson from our text this morning. Faith without obedience isn't faith. Essentially what James says is, don't lie to yourself and say that you have faith when you aren't willing to do what God is leading to you to do in your life. I think this is one of the hardest lessons for Jesus' followers in America. Because religion in America, it's so easy. It's even trendy in most of our cultures. Being religious in America comes down to a simple, systematic way of living out a weekly routine. You you get up, you get your family dressed, you head out the door, most of the time in a heated rush that starts with this huge argument on the way to church, and then we're all smiles when we get there. We sit through Sunday school, we come into worship, we sing two or three songs, we drop our money in the offering plate, we sit down, we sing another song, we hear the pastor preach for 20 to 30 minutes or 40 minutes, if he really thinks he's feeling it. We stand up and sing another song, and then we leave. It's easy. In 60 to 80 minutes, we have checked off all that we need to do on our religious to-do list. It's easy to follow rules. It's especially easy to shape our religion to fit into our perspectives and customs of life. But James seems to be telling us that Jesus' invitation is something wholly different. He's inviting us to think completely different than we have before. I think the answer to our question of what this looks like can best be summed up in the words of Master Yoda. In in Star Wars, Empire Strikes Back, there's this epic sequence that takes place on the planet Dagobah. If you haven't seen it, catch up. Um, Where young Luke Skywalker has ventured to train with Master Yoda. And as they go deeper and deeper into their training, Yoda brings Luke to the place where his X-wing crash-landed and got stuck in the swamp. And Yoda instructs Luke to use the force to lift the X-wing out of the swamp and onto dry ground. And Luke replies in a typical whiny Luke Skywalker voice, it cannot be done, it's too big. And Yoda responds with one of the greatest speeches in cinematic history. I'm not even going to try to do the voice. Size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? (laughs) Always what cannot be done. You know nothing that I say. You must unlearn what you have learned. You must unlearn what you have learned. You see, I think that's what James is trying to tell us. That we have all this religious facade, we have all this religiosity that we've built up in our lives And how often does that religious facade get in the way of what God is actually calling us to do in our lives? Therefore, we must unlearn what we have learned. And that begins with knowing the living God that abides within and among us. James is not calling us to memorize God's words, but intentionally know the living God. It's important for us to remember that when James is writing this, there was no such thing as written scripture. 
There was no such thing as the Bible as we know it today. Even the Hebrew people would only have limited access to these things called scrolls. Furthermore, the Bible as we have it today wouldn't be compiled until 390 A.D., even in its limited access to other people. So he's not referring to the Old Testament scriptures. He's not even referring to what we would know as the New Testament scriptures. What he's referring to is the living, breathing word of God that John talks about in John chapter 1. This living, breathing God that abides among and around us. God has planted God's word within us, this living spirit of God that Jesus reminded us would empower us to do all the things that he taught us to do. It is the spirit of God that entered into the first disciples in the story we know as Pentecost. It is on this day that the disciples led thousands of people to transforming love of God. It is the spirit of God that propelled them forward to carry out the kingdom of God. You see, you cannot simply hear the word of God and not do what it says. If we have faith in God, do we know the living God within us? There's a difference between a religious life and following Jesus. Jesus invites us to journey with him day after day, year after year, for a lifetime. It's a journey where God is not some distant figure, but this personal being that exists and abides among and around us. It is in this journey of better knowing the one who created us, who is shaping and forming us into a better us, who is inviting us to be transformed and transform this world. Do you know that God? Not know about that God. Do you truly know God? And if not, ask God to increase your faith, to increase your awareness of God's presence in your life. But if you ask, you must believe and not doubt. You cannot expect to hear and live out the word of God unless you know the living God and word within you. Knowing the living God is a springboard into the rest of our life. When we know the living God within and among us, then God's voice becomes more clear. God's strength becomes more real. God's character becomes more familiar. When we truly know God, then we are faithful to what God desires. God's priorities become our priorities. God's desires become our desires. We are created by and follow a complex God that invites us to think deeply and critically But sometimes we are searching so deeply for what God desires that it's so simple and sitting right there in front of us. And that's what James says in verse 27. He he says, Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this. Wars have been waged. Millions have been murdered. Countries have been overtaken. Trillions of dollars has been spent. And the history of the world has been shaped and formed by religions. There is roughly 270 religions in this world, and roughly 84% of the world's population claim to have faith of some kind. The majority of the population fits into the categories of Buddhism, Hinduism, Islam, Judaism, Christianity as their flagship faith. Each faith group on its own claims to have the true way of God to better living, to enlightenment of some, some sort. Who wants to follow a religion that they don't believe is right? Abraham Lincoln has been credited with saying, my concern is not whether or not God is on my side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. Yet in a world that wages war itself over 
religion because of the depths of our being, no matter if we are from Asia or Africa or Australia or North America or Europe or South America, we want to be attached to the being that is greater than ourselves, to be enlightened to a better understanding, to raise us out of the deepest darkness of our soul. The Buddha is credited with saying, just as a candle cannot burn without fire, men cannot live without a spiritual life. You see, the word religion wasn't even formed in a spiritual endeavor. The word, uh, its etymology finds its roots in a Latin word, which means to link or to bind. Later, the word was conformed to religio, which means obligated or bound or reverence. It is this idea that mankind is, is trying to bind itself, it's trying to link itself to this higher, more powerful, and all-knowing creator. The word James uses here is only used four times in Scripture. It means religious worship or discipline. It does not refer to some sort of internal philosophy or systems of belief, but rather an external practice, an external practice of one's philosophy, one's belief. So external action that God the Father accepts is pure and faultless. Whatever comes next is something that is absolutely profound. And he says this in verse 27. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after widows and orphans in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Wait, what? This isn't exactly what we thought the Bible should say. What about the religion that Father accepts as pure and faultless is to help people that they're wrong and hell-bound Shouldn't the answer be to kick everyone out who doesn't have the same beliefs as us and, and, and persuade them that they need to believe exactly what we believe and to restrict their religious practices until they conform to our practices? Wait, what about crusades and killing and suppressing in order to do great things in the name of God? Okay, we'll make this more simpler. Shouldn't this be about following a, a strict set of rules and laws? I mean, the Ten Commandments is clearly laid out for us. All right, we'll make this super easy. Religion that God the Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to go to church weekly, to give 10% of our money, to read the Bible, to pray, to not listen to filthy music and movies, and to wear cheesy Christian t-shirts. That's what God accepts as pure and faultless, right? Instead of giving us what we expect or even what we have formed our religion to be, James gives us something that's closer to the heart of God. And it's not the first time. This has been part of the story of God for a long time. Over 40 verses of Scripture mandate that we look after orphans and widows. One of the famous texts comes from Isaiah chapter 1, where Isaiah says on behalf of God, all of these sacrifices, all of these offerings that you're bringing to God, all of these festivals, God thinks they're pointless. But if you want to get right with God, wash and clean your hands of this pointless religiosity. What does he say? Cease to do evil. Learn to do what is good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan plead the case of the widow. And this pattern repeats again and again in our scriptures. What we're learning is that what James is trying to say is that it's not about this system of belief, this system of religiosity that we have created. It's about simply loving God and loving others and showing our faith by the way that we live our lives. 
That's what it means to be God-centered. Let's return to Dagobah for just a second. Is that okay? Luke Skywalker has got one of the most frustrating students that Yoda has ever experienced before. This Jedi master, he's trained the greats, Qui-Gon Jinn, Obi-Wan Kenobi, Anakin Skywalker, and so many others. Some of y'all are just like, what are you talking about? But Luke doesn't get it at all. He still can't unlearn what he has learned. So here we are with the X-Wing stuck in the swamp. Yoda tells him again to lift it out using the power of the force. Frustrated even more, Luke responds, all right, I'll give it a try. No, not try, Yoda says indignantly. Do or do not, there is no try. How often do we chalk up our faith to something that we will simply try out? How often do we chalk up our faith in the invitation of Christ to meet the real needs around us by claiming that we'll let some people do that? That's the work of some of us. That's the work of this organization here. But what James is saying, the the religion that God desires that is faultless and pure is what? For us to seek after widows and orphans in their distress. Did you know that in the U.S. there are roughly 400,000 children living without permanent families in the foster care system? Nearly 102,000 of these children are eligible for adoption, but nearly 32% of these children will wait over three years in foster care before they are being adopted. Around the world, there is an estimated 153 million orphans who have lost one parent. There's 18 million orphans who have lost both parents and are living in orphanages that don't take care of their needs and are dying of, of disease and malnutrition. It's estimated that every single day that 20 to 30,000 children will die because of starvation and preventable diseases. Author uh, Adrian Warnock puts it this way, While it's not all Christians are gifted and equipped for taking in orphans, it's pretty convicting The 65 million American evangelicals can't rescue 150,000 kids from an unstable hell. And the non-religiousness of our neighbors aren't struck by the church not simply applying the word of God, and quite possibly we are no, no longer relevant in our culture. The question we should be asking is, are we engaging in faultless and pure religion? Or as Stephen Colbert put it, if this is going to be a Christian nation that doesn't help the poor, either we have to pretend that Jesus was just as selfish as we are, or we've got to acknowledge that he commanded us to love the poor and serve the needy without condition, and then admit that we just really don't want to do it. Love of others. That's the application of our faith. It's not an invitation to have this God-centered system of beliefs that we can simply tell everyone what we believe. It's about living it out. It's about hearing the word of God and putting it into practice each and every day. One of my favorite things about traveling the world is the open markets. And if you've ever been to one, you know what I'm talking about. I just always recommend you keep your money safe and secure in your front pocket. And along the way, uh, as you go into these open markets, you encounter some of the most extraordinary things. Everything is handmade and hand-painted, except the guy two stalls down has the exact same thing that looks the exact same thing as handmade and hand-painted. 
And I love going into these open markets because you can get things like $15 Rolexes or $10 a pair of Oakleys or Ray-Ban glasses or $20 pair of, of Nike shoes. And you get what you pay for. I mean, if you're wanting that look and feel and then you take it home, I don't care how many times I've bought these things within a matter of days, they just start to, to fall apart. Yes, they have the expensive name brand stamped on it, but it's about the extent of its quality. It's just a rip-off. It's just a real imitation of the real thing. Do we have an imitation of faith? Do we have a faith that hears the word of God and puts it into practice? It's not the invitation to just read what's in this thing we have here. But it's an invitation to hear the living, breathing, active word of God in our lives as individuals and as a community of people and begin to live that out each and every day. Do we have a faith that is a ripoff, an imitation? Or do we have a faith as humbly and as mistake-filled as it can be, and that is okay, but we are seeking to follow God each and every day and live out what God is calling us to. Being God-centered is not about putting a wonderful religious facade out. It's not about minding our P's and Q's. It's not about religious patty cake. Being God-centered is about knowing the living God within and among us and choosing to engage what God is calling us to each day. This is the nuts and bolts lessons of James, that we try and attempt to follow and live out our faith in God. Idiots can hear the word of God and walk away and never put it into practice. But God is calling us to be brilliant. God is calling us to receive the word of God and in response, live it out. There is no sitting on the fence when it comes to being God-centered. There is no trying. We either do or we do not.